Galatians chapter number 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me into the churches of Galatia. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, This morning I want to preach on Galatians. Not from Galatians, but I want to, Lord willing, go over this whole letter. I entitled the sermon Galatians at 30,000 feet. So imagine we're in an airplane looking down over the landscape from above, and we have a feel for the landscape, and that's what we're going to do. It's an overview of this letter. Uh, Paul is concerned about false teachers who are trying to draw the Galatian saints away from the true gospel into a false gospel. These guys were trying to make them, have them trust in works rather than to live by faith. That they would live like slaves rather than live like heirs. And these deceivers were trying to lead them from the liberty of the spirit into the bondage of the law. All false teachers and all false religions have some sort of works righteousness. And even those who would twist and pervert the scriptures do so to exchange law or grace and law or to add law to grace. I think it's dangerous because that's our default setting, thinking that we can um, please God by our works. And so... What was happening here and what happens even today is people will take the grace of God and add a little bit of law to it, add a little bit of works to it that we can participate and and work with God in our salvation. But Paul proves in this letter you can't do that. You can't add a little bit of works, a little bit of law to the gospel because otherwise you have no more gospel. And so we're going to look at the lay of the land this morning. And I think there's three main movements in this letter. Uh, first, you have the good news from heaven. And Paul tells, pretty much in the first two chapters, is Paul telling the story of his uh, conversion, his call into the apostleship, and then an incident that happens with Peter. But there's a point to this. So it's a big, long section of narrative. But there's a point to why Paul is is saying this. And then the next big chunk is justification by faith. Paul lays out the gospel and then proves from the Old Testament that we were justified by faith, not by the works of the law. So he takes the Old Testament and proves that that we're not saved by keeping the law of the Old Testament. And then the rest of the letter he discusses freedom and liberty that we have in the Lord Jesus. So, of course, I'm not going to read this whole letter this morning, um, but we just want to hit highlights to get the the theme of this letter. Paul preaches good news for sinners. 
that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, we have everlasting life, and he will defend that to the hilt. There is no other way of salvation other than faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we are saved by grace and justified by faith alone. So this first section is good news from heaven. Paul cements the fact that the good news of the gospel message about is God's message about the salvation God provides through Jesus Christ the Lord. And you can trust that good news. So in what we read, Paul introduces himself in his gospel. He was an apostle. And that's not a position that is handed down by man, but it was by Jesus Christ and God the Father. So Paul speaks as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, not as an ambassador of Peter or, or James. What Paul says here isn't coming from someone who knew the right people or someone who worked his way up the ladder to, to work his way up into the position that he has. But he's an apostle of Jesus Christ who gave himself, um, the, the Christ who gave himself for our sins. So in verses 6 through 10, Paul talks about this false gospel. He said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And as we said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, than that you have received, let him be accursed. For do, now I persuade men or God. Do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So this section just sets the tone of the letter, and he gets straight to the point. There's no, I'm thankful for this, and I'm glad of that, like you have in many of the other letters. No, he just gets straight to the point. I marvel that you're so quickly turned to another gospel. This group had led them away from the truth of the gospel to another gospel, which is no good news at all. Since there's only one way to heaven, there's not two gospels to tell you how to get there. There's one way to heaven, and there's one gospel. A false gospel, gospel means good news, so a false gospel is fake news. A False glad tidings is terrible tidings. You can't believe it. It's perverted. It turns it from one thing to another. So if you have the perfect recipe for blackberry cobbler, and you think, I like, I'd like to have me a good, nice, well done, or a medium porterhouse steak. Right. You say, I'd like a nice, big, medium steak. But I also like blackberry cobbler. I think I'm just going to combine the two. I'm going to chop up that, uh, that steak and I'm going to add it to my cobbler. Now, does that alter it? Does that change it? Well, I wouldn't want either one at that point, would you? I, because you've added something to it. Even though you take something that is good, the steak, even though that's good, if you add it to the cobbler, it's no longer cobbler. It's just a, a mess of something. You've perverted it. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is perfect. 
If you take something away from it, you make it worse. Say, I want blackberry cobbler, but I don't want any blackberries in it. You've taken something away from it, right? You haven't improved upon it. You've made it worse. If you add something to it, you haven't improved on If it's perfect, you can't, you don't change it. Because you'll either, you'll make it worse. Adding something to the gospel perverts it. Taking something away from the gospel alters it. And it makes it something else entirely. And that's Paul's point. So he says, if an angel comes down from heaven and an angel preaches another gospel, let that angel be accursed. If I come back here and I change my tune and I start preaching a different message, let me be accursed. If anyone preaches another gospel, then the one that I've already preached to you, let them be accursed, including those people who are in the church who are causing you to lead astray. So when the when the church got this letter, it's very likely that these guys were sitting in the, in the room as it was read to let them be accursed, let them be cut off. So pretty heavy stuff. But Paul asked, when I write this, am I trying to get men to like me? Verse 10, am I trying to persuade people in something to lift me up? Am I trying to seek man's approval? Am I trying to please men and make people happy? Paul said, I'm not a man pleaser. I'm a servant of Christ. So Paul doesn't seek to win approval of people who are perverting the gospel. And so he tells his origin story. That's the big thing now in, in, in movies and such. You have the origin story of a character that you might like. Well, Paul tells, Paul tells them where he came from. And there's a reason for this. Even It takes up a big chunk of it, but there's a reason, there's a point to this. So we'll, we'll hang on and we'll see it in just a little while. Paul said in verse 11 that, well, in verse, yeah, in verse 11, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul was basically Starting out, he was just, as we read through this, he was a religious terrorist, basically. He persecuted the church of God and he wasted it, he says. He wreaked havoc. People were beaten. They were imprisoned. They were in jail. He consented to the death of Stephen. Because they wouldn't believe what Paul wanted them to believe. And that's what it boils down to. Paul believed something with all of his heart. And because people, because other people wouldn't believe it, then he would, he would persecute them. You believe what I say you believe or else. And so when Paul came to town, Christians knew that they were in trouble. His reputation preceded them. Like in the Westerns, when the outlaws come to town and and the town folks, and, you know, it's always the same thing. A rider rides into town and the women grab the little kids and they drag them into the, into the buildings and the shopkeepers start closing the doors and uh, shutting the windows and that kind of thing. Why? Because the bad guys come to town and they know what, what's going to happen. Well, when Paul comes to town, Christians knew that they were in for it. Paul was all in for Judaism, or at least his version of it. He believed it and was more strict and zealous than any of the Pharisees that you read in the Gospels. 
All those Pharisees that, that were after Jesus and the disciples, take them and, and then multiply by two. That, that's how Paul was. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. But by God's grace, the Lord called Paul, revealed Christ to him, <laughs> saved his soul, and then called him to go out and preach to the heathen. So the Pharisee who would remain separate is now the apostle to the, the Gentiles. He went from being a zealous Jew who hated Jesus Christ to a lover of Christ and a preacher to the Gentiles. One of the great reversals in all of history. But Paul didn't go right back to Jerusalem after his conversion and meet with the apostles. You would think, so normally you would think, well, maybe he would go and find the apostles and say, hey, I, I'm part of your group now. No, he, he did not do that. After his conversion in Damascus, he went to Arabia. And then he went back to Damascus. In verse 17 of chapter 1. And it was here that the Lord instructed Paul and his eyes were opened and enlightened as an apostle received hidden mysteries revealed to him. Paul swayed in the gospel, but in his time in Desperate, I believe this is who was in the Lord. After, because he received it directly from the Lord. After three years, Paul finally went back to Jerusalem to see Peter for a couple weeks. And only him and James. Those were the only two of the apostles that he saw. So the Lord saved him. Three years later, he goes to Jerusalem, meets Peter for a couple of weeks, sees James, then he goes back to Syria and never went to any of the churches in Judea during this period of time. Now they heard of him in verse 23. It says that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith which once he destroyed. And they glorified God in me. B.H. Carroll preached a sermon on this one time that, that Paul's reputation preceded him as a persecutor. Now it precedes him as a preacher of the gospel. And they say, who could turn such a man who hated Jesus into a preacher of Jesus? Who could turn such a man that would persecute now is persecuted for, for the opposite cause? Well, everyone knew it because verse 24, they glorified God in me. Praise God for what they did, what God did to the Apostle Paul. All right, so that, that's the history so far. Now, starting in chapter 2, he's going to ask him a question. Or we go back to that question he asked. Do I seek to persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? So that's what he asked. He tells the story of his conversion. And now, 14 years later, starting in chapter 2, we see how Paul practices what he preaches. He, he does not live to please men. Paul returns to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus and told the church and the apostles of the, the gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles. So Paul didn't go learn this from the apostles. He didn't go and get permission from the apostles. This is 17 years since Paul's conversion that he's going back to talk to all the apostles at one time in Jerusalem. 17 years. That's 2007. I, I, I calculate, I, I didn't think about that, and I said, well, how long is 2007? 
or how long? Seventeen years. Two thousand seven. Boy, I can't believe I'm. I must be getting old because that doesn't seem seventeen years ago. But imagine that's about when Brother Pruitt came here, I think. So that's how long of a period of time it's been since since Paul's conversion till he finally meets uh, all the apostles. So Titus was a Greek. He wasn't a Jew. So Paul, Barnabas, and Titus comes and. No one there told Titus he had to be circumcised. Peter didn't. James didn't. John didn't. None of the apostles said, hey, Titus, you need to be circumcised. But there were some bad guys there, false brethren, who came to spy out their liberty and tried to bring them back under bondage. And then Paul says in verse 5, to whom we gave place by subjection no not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you Paul didn't put up with it he didn't put up with it for a minute he didn't he didn't go along with it he didn't say well we'll agree to disagree he said no that is as contrary to the gospel you trying to drag Titus back into the Old Testament law is contrary to the gospel and he, he would not stand by and let anybody, and he didn't care who they were, change the gospel. The Old Testament law in this regard hadn't been an issue, if you think about it, because the, the church was primarily Jews or Jewish proselytes. There wasn't a debate about circumcision because these people, for the most part, were already circumcised, the men. But when the Gentiles came, and Paul's out preaching to Gentiles, then the false brethren say, well, these people, these people need to be circumcised. You know, if they want to be one of us, then they, they need to go through these practices. Now, the people that were there with Paul in Jerusalem, they seemed to be influential. And they said, well, Paul, you preach a good gospel. But that didn't add anything to Paul's message. It didn't impress Paul. It didn't build him up. Because it really didn't matter if they approved of him or not. Paul didn't go to Jerusalem to seek their approval or their permission. Now, Paul is not just bragging that he doesn't care what anyone thinks. But the point he's making here is that Paul had received the truth from God himself. God had given him this truth. He had revealed it to him. He, he spoke to him as an apostle. And so it didn't matter what anybody said because he knew the truth straight from God. And he was convinced. He knew without a shadow of doubt this was the truth. And it didn't matter who, who came along and said, well, yeah, I'll keep up the good work. And Paul said, yeah, I will. Or they said, well, you're not preaching right. And he said, I don't care who you are, and I don't care what you say. This is the, the truth of the gospel, and I will not bend one way or the other on this. Even when James and Peter and John gave him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, and they said, we'll stick to the Jewish community, you go preach to the Gentiles. He still did he was going to do it whether they gave him the right hand of fellowship or not. 
So what's the point? So now we're getting close to the payoff of why he's telling this story. Because we have an incident with Peter. This kind of ties all this stuff together, um, you know, what he's all about here. So later, Peter comes to Antioch. That's in a city in modern-day Turkey. It's about 450 miles north of Jerusalem. So you go north, you go through Syria, Damascus, keep on going, modern-day Turkey, and you get to Antioch. And at that meeting, Paul and Peter got into it, and Paul opposed Peter to his face because Peter was wrong. Peter was at the church in Antioch, and everything was fine. He was visiting and no issues. But some other men came up from Jerusalem, and they were associated with James. And when they got there, Peter quit fellowshipping with the Gentiles. He withdrew from them. And Peter did this because he feared man. He cared about what other people thought about him. This is in verse 12 of chapter 2. And when Peter did that, naturally other people started following Peter. And so you're having a, a separation. Jews on one side and Gentiles on the other. And they dissembled or, or they started acting hypocritically. So much that Barnabas got carried away with their hypocrisy, and he joined with them too. Well, Paul had had enough of this. Because they were not walking upright according to the gospel. Verse 14. Why did they separate? It wasn't because of personality. It wasn't because they just got along better with one group or another. But because they said the Old Testament law required it. They said, well, the Old Testament says, you know, about eating with Gentiles and, and circumcised and, and they haven't been. And, you know, that's what the, that's what the Bible says. And, and Peter said, yeah, you're right. I, I don't want the Jews to be mad at me because that is what the Bible says. And so they started separating. But if the Old Testament law required it, what does that say about the Gentiles born under that covenant? And if that's the case, what must the Gentiles do to get right? See, that's the big issue here. Because if Peter was saying, well, we have to separate because the Gentiles are, haven't, you know, they, they're not circumcised and they haven't, they weren't natural Jews and all these things. Well, the question is, what do they have to do to make it right? And the only answer to that is, well, they have to go and be circumcised and they have to go and do all the, the Old Testament rituals and so forth before they can become members of the church and become equals. Well, in verse 14, at the end of the verse, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles and do not as the Jews, why compel us the Gentiles to live as the Jews? Who are the Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ? Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith and not the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the thing which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For though, or 
For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live to God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So Paul says, Peter, you're a Jew by the flesh. And if you're going to live after the manner of the Gentiles, because you are, because you came to Antioch, and we've seen how you've been living before the other Jews came here. If you're going to do that in some areas of your life, why are you now telling the Gentiles to go live like um, their Old Testament Jews? Paul says, you and I both were born Jewish. And you and I both know that a man is not justified by keeping the law. And we're justified by faith in Christ. The law can't save us. You have faith in Christ for your salvation. No one can keep the, be justified by keeping the law. So why are you trying to tell the Gentiles to do that? Why are you trying to rebuild what has been torn down? It's, it's like a, a, a bunch of prisoners in a, in a prison and, and an earthquake happens and the jail falls down. And, and the prisoners are now free. And they said, we're free, we're free, what should we do? And someone says, well, we probably ought to build that jail back because that's where, um, that's where we got our, our supper. And so the prisoners start building the, the prison back because that's where they had eaten their supper. He said, well, that's crazy. Just, you're out, go, be free. Well, Paul said, Christ has put an end to that old covenant and you're trying to rebuild it. And once you rebuild it, you're going to be condemned again. Believers are dead to the law because we died with Christ and now we live with Christ. We're, we cruci we're crucified with him, but we're united to him now. He lives in us and the life we live is by faith in Christ. So Paul doesn't nullify the grace of God. He doesn't modify it or tear it down. He lives in it. Well, if the law could save you, then you ought to be saved by the law. Because if the law can save you, then what was the point of Jesus coming? If you could be saved by keeping the law, then Jesus didn't have to die. So now we see why it was important and why this story matters. Because Paul received this gospel not from men, but from God himself. Paul didn't take a gospel from the other apostles and modify it and make it his own. But Paul preached what he received from Christ as an apostle. And not only did Paul preach a pure gospel, he preached it to the heathen, he preached it in Jerusalem, he preached it to unbelievers, he preached it to the apostles. And Paul didn't submit to other men or seek their approval because he had the gospel truth from the Lord himself. He doesn't seek to please men, to make men happy. He doesn't seek to preach a gospel so people would like him. His only, the only person he desires approval from is the Lord who called him. So that, even so much as he would call out Peter when walking contrary to the gospel. So when Paul says if an angel from heaven, or if Paul himself or any other man preach another gospel, let him be accursed, Paul practiced what he preached. He, 
Paul said, this is the truth and you can't change it. It doesn't matter if you're in a different context. It doesn't matter if you're with a different group of people. This is the truth and you can't change it. There's only one way of heaven, one gospel, and this is it. The gospel that they had didn't come from hearsay, but from straight from God. Paul would stand up to even the other apostles if they had it wrong. So he's shoring up their confidence in the message that they had heard. Now these, these Judaizers come in and they start saying, well, I've been, I've, been, um, I've been living the life of a Jew for all my life. I've been going to the temple and the synagogue for the last 60 years. And I can tell you what that Old Testament means. And I can tell you what it says. And you need to be circumcised. And these Gentiles will look and they have, you know, they look to the Old Testament and I say, well, I guess he's got a point. And Paul says it doesn't matter how long they've been reading that Old Testament. It doesn't matter how many trips they've made to the temple. It doesn't matter how many times that they've offered their sacrifices and offerings. If they preach a different gospel, they are wrong. If it's contrary to this, they're contrary to God. And so then, that's why we get into the next part of this in chapter number three, justification by faith. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, you're now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If it yet be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doth he not by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So who are the Galatians listening to? Are they following this insane pattern of leaving the way of salvation to go back to the way of condemnation? They were tempted to go backwards, back under the law that they've been set free from. But ironically, they would not obey the truth of the gospel. Verse 1, he says that. You won't obey the truth of the gospel to, to trust in Christ and receive Christ, repent and have faith in Christ. You won't do that. But you will do all these other things. He says, when you first were saved, how, did, how were you saved? Were you saved by keeping the law or were you saved by the Spirit? Did you come to Christ through faith or did you come by Christ by keeping the law? He said, so why would you start in the spirit and think you're going to finish it up in the law? Why would you think that? Why would you think God would save you by his grace? Save you by the spirit? Give you a quicken you, giving you life. And then say, OK, now you go back under the law. No, Paul says that's not how it works. Why would you do that? In fact, this is not a new concept. No one has ever been justified by the law. Verse 6, even as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know you therefore that they which are of faith are the same as the children of Abraham? And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which are of faith 
are blessed with faithful Abraham. So the gospel is preached in the Old Testament. The Judaizers were reading the Old Testament, but they just weren't reading it like Christians. I read that part here in the chapter, so sad you were referencing Luke, that poor Paul's had a profound relation. That is what trying to act into the Old Testament covenant. Paul uses as his foundation the Old Testament scriptures. They were reading the Old Testament, they just weren't reading it right. Abraham believed, and God counted his faith as righteousness. And Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6. God, God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness before God gave Abraham circumcision. So Abraham can't be circumcised in order to be saved because God already told Abraham he was his faith, he was justified by faith first. First there was justification by faith, then there was circumcision. Then Paul goes on to explain that all nations, not just the Jewish people, would be saved by grace through faith. You're justified by faith. Then you're just like Abraham, who was also justified by faith. Justification is a legal term. And that's where God declares somebody righteous. So God sits upon, you can imagine him sitting upon a, a a throne as the judge and declares you a righteous person. He said, but I'm not righteous. I'm not perfect. How can I, how can I uh, be righteous if, I'm, if I've sinned, if I've broken the law? How can I be perfect if I've broken the law? Well, you were declared righteous because Jesus forgave you of your sins. And he imputed to you righteousness, just like Abraham. Abraham believed and it was counted as righteousness. You trust in Christ for the salvation of your soul, and it's accounted, it's put to your account as righteous. So God looks at you, your sins are gone, there's nothing to judge, and then you have all the perfect obedience of Christ. So God declares you righteous, justified. But if you stay under the law, if you want to stay under the law for, justif for justification, you're staying under the curse. You say, well, that's good. That I want to be justified, but I also want to keep the law so God will count me righteous. All you're doing is going back under the curse because it says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things which are written in the book of the law. That's from Leviticus 18. Paul says, you want to talk Old Testament? Let's talk Old Testament. The man that doeth them shall live in them. Leviticus 18.5. So those are your two options this morning. You can trust in Christ for the salvation of your soul, receive Christ, have your sins forgiven, and have his righteousness, or you can go and keep the law and do the best that you can. You can't do both. Because if you choose the law, you got to do it all, every bit of it. Perfectly, entirely, exactly, and perpetually. There's this no halfway stuff. You got to do it all. And you got to keep doing it all. You got to do every bit of it. And you have to do it exactly right. And not one of us in here this morning to do that for the rest of the day, let alone the rest of our lives. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law because he was made a curse for us dying on our behalf. And so that's how the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles through Christ. 
we receive the promise of the Spirit, not through the Old Covenant, but through Christ. And so Paul goes on to make this point that if I make a covenant with you and it's being confirmed, I can't go back and break it. I can't change the rules. And so we ask, you think God's going to do that with Abraham? That a promise was made to Abraham and his seed. God's not going to change his mind or lie to Abraham later on. Because Paul makes the point that that seed, which Abraham was promised in Genesis, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that seed that would come, it wasn't a bunch of people. It was one person, and that was Christ. So the promises of the blessing would come through that one particular person. It's not that Judaism will spread the, the globe and people will be blessed to be under Moses. But no, through that one descendant. And so that covenant was made, was confirmed in Christ. And, and any other thing that comes after that can't disannul that promise. So if, in, if the inheritance comes through the law, then that disannuls the covenant with Abraham. Because the law that was given to Moses 430 years after this can't supersede or do away with the earlier eternal covenant that was made in Christ. So now you get down to verse 19. You say, so what was the point? If God made a covenant with Abraham about the seed that would come, and that's the new covenant, right? What's the point of that part in the middle? Why do we have the the? Why did Moses give a covenant? Why did God give a law? Well, nineteen through twenty-two tells us that God added it because of sin until the promised seed came. It was temporary. Always was going to be temporary. God didn't give a covenant that was an adversary to his grace. He didn't, and he also didn't offer another way of salvation. But gave the law to show that there was no law that could save. Israel were, was hard-hearted. And this law was there to, to keep them until Christ came. So then, starting in verse 23 all the way to chapter 4, verse 11. He, he makes some points about being a slave or an heir. So the law kept God's people. The law was like a schoolmaster, like a, somebody, a guardian to watch over the kids. All believers in the new covenant are the children of God by Christ. Not by birth, not by law, but by Christ. Um, I said I was reading some from B.H. Carroll. And he wonders if Galatia was actually um, the Gauls, which would end up being, you know, into France and Ireland and Scotland. So he was wondering, he said, it could be that that would be our descendants through these, these groups um, in Galatia. But we're not uh, Jewish. And Paul says, but in Christ... There is no more Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter anymore. There's no more bond or free. There's no more male or female. That kind of stuff doesn't matter to be in the covenant. There's no more segregation by who you are because we're all one in Christ. 
And if we have faith in Christ, that makes us Abraham's children and heirs according to the promise. Not heirs according to the law. Not heirs according to Moses, but heirs according to the promise God made in Abraham, confirmed in Christ. Then he goes on to say there's not much difference between a, a child and a slave and a servant, as long as the child is young. So think about it this way. There's not much difference between someone who works for Elon Musk and Elon Musk's kid. You know, richest man in the world. And there's not much difference between his kid and maybe the person he pays to babysit his kid. If Elon Musk comes in and tells his boy to pick up the toys, he has to go and pick up the toys. If he comes in and tells the, the, the babysitter, pick up those toys, she's going to pick up the toys, right? There's not much difference between the two. And in fact, if he pays somebody to watch the kid, the kid has to obey her, even though he's an heir to a vast fortune. So Paul makes that comparison. That's what the law was for. The law was to keep, to guide, and to instruct until the time came when the seed came. The seed, God's own son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. So the, the law makes you um, not... An, ad an adopted son of the law makes you a slave. It, it, it keeps you under bondage. And the, old, the whole reason was for that is for that while God was keeping his people separate and pointing and instructing the people of God uh, through the sacrifices and so forth. But now, since Christ has come, we have the Spirit. And we're not servants anymore. We're sons and heirs of God through Christ. But now that we know God and are known by God, why would we want to go back under the tutor? Why would a full-grown man want to go back to kindergarten and sit under the tutelage of an authority of a kindergarten teacher? What kind of full-grown man would want to go back and color pictures and have to raise his hand and ask permission to go to the bathroom and, and all these kinds of things? Paul said, why? You, who are full-grown men now, you're maturing in Christ, you're sons in Christ in the new covenant, why do you want to go back to the schoolmaster? The Galatians were starting to observe those Jewish feasts and festivals. They were going backwards. And that made Paul fear for their souls. Because Paul wanted to live in freedom and liberty, being justified by faith. And so that starts in chapter 4, verse 12, and goes to the remainder of the book. Paul loved these people and he wanted the best for them. Paul says, so you want to be under the law? Well, think about this, he says. Abraham had two sons, one by Hagar, the other by Sarah. Hagar was a servant. Sarah was the free woman. The son of the servant was born naturally. The son of the free was a miracle of promise. And he said, now think about this allegory. The one given to Moses at Sinai corresponds to, to Hagar, the covenant. Because Hagar was a slave and she born a slave child. The other covenant corresponds to Sarah in Jerusalem, which is above. And Jerusalem, he says, is our mother. And that's why Isaiah meant, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry thou travailest not. For desolate has many more children than she which hath a husband. Right? So what he's saying is, 
If you think of Hagar and Sarah, God said, you're going to have a child. Sarah was worried because she was too old. She said, go in, lay with uh, Hagar and have a child. And Abraham did. And so Ishmael was born. And then you have Ishmael. Well, then God said, well, I promised you a child, but not through her. And then Isaac was born. Isaac was a child of promise. Well, what happened? Well, you had those two boys living in the same house together. You had Hagar and Sarah living in the same house together. And that wasn't going to work. And what did Sarah do? Sarah said, cast out the bondwoman and their son because she's, that boy is not going to live and share the inheritance with my son. Now, what was the point of that story? Well, Paul tells us the point of that story is we are the children of Sarah. And the the, the covenant of law and the covenant of promise can't live in the same house together. Cast out the bondwoman. Cast out that old covenant and live in Christ. You are free in Christ. And so the last two chapters, Paul fleshes out how to live like that. We don't use liberty to serve the flesh. We haven't been freed to be slaves of the devil. Knowing the new covenant, we are in Christ and no longer condemned by the law, but we are free now to pursue godliness and holiness for the glory of God. And he works that out and shows us what that looks like. To express that, Paul quotes Leviticus, saying that we ought to love our neighbors as ourselves. So does that mean that we don't live by the the ethics of the Old Testament? Well, of course not, because Paul quotes Leviticus and says this is how free men in Christ live. He's not saying that we're free from keeping the law, or obeying the law, rather. But we have been freed from do this and live. We have been freed from trying to make God happy with us so we can go to heaven. Because we have, we are children of the promise. We've been justified by faith. There's no condemnation for us. The law cannot condemn us. That is good news. The law can't condemn you anymore. If you are in Christ, you are saved. You are forgiven. You are free. So how do you live? Well, you live as one of Christ's free men. And dwelt by the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. Will the Spirit lead us to sin? No. But the law is not there to save us. It's there now to guide us. It's not there as a judge to condemn us. It's there as um, a friend to direct us. The law can't save us and it's foolish to try. There's only one way to be saved. One gospel, one hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is good news. That is good news, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and that through faith in the work of Christ, we have everlasting life. There's no other way of salvation than in Christ Jesus. And why, oh why, do we want to to drive ourselves back under that law that can't save us and only condemn us? He died for our sins and we died with him. He rose from the dead and we live in him. If you're not in Christ, you're in your sins and that law will only condemn you. Turn and come to Christ and be saved. May God add the blessing to the priest's word this morning. Let's stand and be dismissed.